From ABC7 New York, this is Eyewitness News Extra Time. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. I'm Bill Ritter. We're going to begin with the big breaking news of the day, the civil trial ruling that will cost Donald Trump, his family, and his company hundreds of millions of dollars to be paid to the state of New York. Here are the particulars. The judge punishing the former president with a huge $355 million payment and barring him from doing business in New York for the next three years. The judge said Mr. Trump showed no remorse for inflating his net worth to banks and to the government. The former president's sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, have each been ordered to pay $4 million. Now, this ruling comes after 44 days of testimony, during which we heard from four members of the Trump family and 46 witnesses. Lots to unpack here. Eyewitness News reporter N.J. Burkett is live now in Lower Manhattan. Newt. That's right, Bill, here in Lower Manhattan, where a news conference with State Attorney General Letitia James has just wrapped up. She said throughout the trial that no one is above the law. This verdict tonight, she says, is proof of that. Well, Donald Trump is breathing fire and promising to appeal. The verdict deals a punishing blow to Donald Trump's real estate empire and his own self-styled image as an infallible tycoon. Trump and his adult sons fined roughly $363 million and banned from doing business in New York. The former president for three years and two years each for Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. Their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological, just as Arthur and Goran wrote, yet defendants are incapable of admitting the error of their ways. The frauds found here leap off the page and shocked the conscience. The trial lifted the gilded veil on the Trump organization. Justice Arthur N. Goran had already ruled that the Trumps and their associates fraudulently overvalued the former president's net worth and his real estate assets to make deals and to get big loans. Among the allegations that Trump claimed his apartment in Trump Tower is three times larger than it actually is and worth $327 million. Mar-a-Lago, 10 times more than it's worth, and that he overvalued his net worth by more than $3 billion. But the defense claimed that no one was deceived or defrauded, and that Trump's bankers eagerly made the loans and profited from them. Throughout the trial, Trump mocked the attorney general and her legal team and berated Justice Ngoron, insisting without evidence that he's the victim of the Democratic conspiracy to destroy his business and to foil his reelection campaign. The attorney general is a total, she's a corrupt person, terrible person. This woman is grossly incompetent. Horrible, horrible. The disgrace to our country. This verdict is a manifest injustice, plain and simple, said defense attorney Elena Haba. It is the culmination of a multi-year politically fueled witch hunt that was designed to take down Donald Trump. The impact on the Trump organization is difficult to measure. But it could be devastating, says former assistant Manhattan DA Michael Bachner. Donald Trump is going to be left and his family is going to be left with a massive hit to their financial uh, wherewithal, which many people believe has been exaggerated already. Um, so this is a major, major problem for, for Trump. Well, the state attorney general says that with interest and penalties, it may be more like 460 million for Trump. More from her in a moment. But first, the former president speaking from Palm Beach. If I weren't running, none of this stuff would have ever happened. None of these lawsuits would have ever happened. Nothing would. I would have had a nice life. But I enjoy this life for a different reason. We're going to make America great again. 
These are corrupt people. These are people that shouldn't be allowed to do the things they do. Donald Trump falsely, knowingly, inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself, his family, and to cheat the system. Donald Trump may have authored the art of the deal, but he perfected the art of the steal. Wow. Again, the former president promising tonight to appeal, but all in all, not a good week for Donald Trump. Bill? Not at all, although he did make a very big deal. I got, I got texts, I'm sure ever, you did too, I know a lot of people did, asking Trump, Mr. Trump asking people for donations to pay for this. I'm not sure that this fine, unlike paying for lawyers, but this fine to the state can be taken out of donate, donators, people who donate money to his political campaign. Yeah, I think that may be problematic for Trump. Look, it's a huge hit. If you accept the Forbes estimate, he fell off the Forbes 400 list uh, this year again. But if you take the Forbes list estimate, he's worth $2.6 billion. So if you add up all of the fines that the state attorney general has now succeeded in getting imposed on him, that amounts to somewhere like 15% of his net worth bill. Yeah, and just for the record, before we say goodbye, and thank you, great work today when you were at court all day. But Mr. Trump said uh, that if he weren't running for president, this wouldn't be happening. But this investigation was, was in, started long before he decided to run for president. Uh, that, that should go on the record, I think. Yeah, no question about okay. it. That's right, Bill. Newt, thank you very much. Uh, NJ Burkett reporting from Lower Manhattan tonight. And, of course, be sure to stay with Eyewitness News and ABC News for continuing coverage of all of these developments in the trials of former President Trump. And now... Something we haven't seen in so long, it's going to happen three times in one week. How does that work, Lee Goldberg? <laughs> Just got to hit the right pattern, get a little cold, and you get a little real, real winter for a little bit. And this could be the scene later tonight into the wee hours of Saturday morning with a quick-hitting light to moderate snowfall. Snow on the way, it's arriving toward midnight. Right now, visibility is good, midtown down to one world trade. Clouds are starting to roll in from the west, but snow is about as close as maybe, well, it's getting close to Harrisburg. Pennsylvania right now. We're at 40 degrees. A northwest breeze is five. Wind was howling earlier. It's much lighter now, but it is cold enough to sport snow and it's coming during, you know, prime time for snow to stick during the overnight hours. So from midnight to maybe daybreak is the window for the steadiest snow. A lot of places will get one to three inches. Even two to three is probably more common than the one. You have to go to the northern suburbs to get ones. And then the difference today is that it looks like we could actually top three inches in many spots over central and southern New Jersey. I'll show you the map in just a second. Behind the system, it's actually quiet for a while, but it is rather brisk on Sunday. Brisk and chilly. Now, remember, we have the two big hockey games coming up uh, as we go into the weekend. One tomorrow evening, Saturday evening, another one on Sunday afternoon. Both are going to be really cold, so layer up if you're headed to the game, but it will be dry and roads will be in better conditions. Headed to MetLife and the Meadowlands. Next week, a warming trend, but a one week from today we may actually have a close call with a nor'easter. I, I'm highlighting this area here from I-78 down to 195. We can get some of our heaviest snowfalls. We're going to drop near and below freezing in most of our suburbs. The city's still at 40, so it's another situation where we might get two to three inches in New York City, but it'll probably just be slush on the roadways. 
There's that snow coming in toward midnight steadies between about two to five in the morning. Here's another way to look at it. The overall snow rates, they're fairly light around midnight and then they ramp up and this actually just updated. So you can see between even 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. And this is definitely, I just want to add it quickly because it's, it, it changes from hour to hour here and it's giving us, you know, over two, two and a half inches of snowfall. And that's been pretty consistent. I think we're in a two to three inch category. Been a couple of flurries. That's not the storm. This is it right here. Steady snows from Indianapolis over to, let's say, Cincinnati and going into Pittsburgh right now. So for us, uh, by the time we see on eyewitnesses at 11, the first snowflakes are moving into our western suburbs, probably after midnight New York City. Notice temperatures are above freezing. Initially, roadways are wet, could become slushy overnight as we drop toward freezing, and the steadiest snow rates overnight from the city on south could touch parts of Long Island too. Lighter snowfall rates to the north, however, you're colder, so you can still get some slick spots in the Hudson Valley, Connecticut, northern New Jersey. Winding down around daybreak might be a little slower to leave on the east end, a lingering flurry the rest of the day, and then clearing out. Uh, puck drop about 8 o'clock at MetLife Saturday evening. We're around 30, feeling like low 20s. Coding to an inch far north, uh, ones and twos, Hudson Valley, interior Connecticut, twos and threes, northern New Jersey, New York City, and Long Island, three to five inches across central and southern New Jersey. 30 tonight, thickening clouds, snow after midnight, the steadiest central and southern New Jersey for tomorrow, it's a high of 37. The steadiest snow actually winds out very early, then just lingering snow showers. Clouds break for a little sun, and it's rather brisk in the afternoon. That's a cold night tomorrow night. It'll feel like teens. Watch out for icy spots if there's any melting during the day. AccuWeather alert to start the weekend. Quiet after that. A little less wind on President's Day 44. Sun and high clouds on Tuesday. Wednesday's your pick of the week before clouds roll in Thursday. Could be a close call with the coastal system next Friday. That's the way it's shaping up. I'll be looking at snow maps all evening long. If there are any updates, I will pass them along immediately. Bill? How better to spend a Friday night? <laughs> I love it. Actually. I know you do. I know that. Thank you, Lee. Uh, and a reminder, tune in tomorrow. Uh, in Eyewitness News this morning, starting at 6 a.m., Danny Beckstrom, Michelle Charlesworth, and Pedro Rivera will have the latest on the snow and everything you need to know before you head out the door for your Saturday weekend start. And as we continue with Eyewitness News Extra Time tonight, chilling news out of Russia. Opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who made the rare move of challenging President Putin of Russia, has died. We have reaction coming in, and we'll tell you what his death means for the citizens of Russia. And then later, you're gonna meet New York's newest residents. We'll tell you why fin whales are swimming around New York waters now year round. Welcome back to Iowa Zeus Extra Time. Another prominent critic of Russia, President Vladimir Putin has died, this time in prison. Coincidence? Perhaps not. Opposition leader Alexei Nalvani went from being the Kremlin's biggest foe to Russia's most prominent political prisoner. He was serving a 20-year sentence in an Arctic prison on charges of extremism. Charges of extremism. Russian leaders claim he collapsed today. The 47-year-old was seen as a challenger to Putin as Russia gets ready for its latest election. President Biden didn't mince words this afternoon when he addressed the nation. He bravely stood up uh, to the corruption, the violence, and the, the, all, the, all the bad things that the Putin government was doing. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Make no mistake, said the president. This afternoon, a vigil took place in a show of support for Navalny outside the Russian consulate on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Joining us now to really talk about this and dive deep, Professor Brian Taylor, director of the Moynihan Institute of Global Affairs at Syracuse University. Professor Taylor, thank you for joining us. 
Thanks for the invitation, Bill. All right. You heard President Biden said there's no question uh, this was not an accident. Do you agree with that? I think that's right. We don't know every detail about the circumstances of his death today, but it is 100 percent fair to say that Alexei Navalny was killed by Vladimir Putin in the Russian state. They tried to poison him in 2020. He miraculously survived. He returned to Russia because he believed a Russian politician belonged in Russia. They threw him in prison. They moved him to a more remote prison. He spent much of his time in prison in solitary confinement. So the poisoning, the conditions of his detention, everything says that Alexei Navalny would be alive today were it not for the actions taken by the Russian state and Vladimir Putin. Before we dig deeper in, into all this, uh, just for the record, I don't think we have a, it's, you know, extremism as a crime here in the United States. No, and the extremism statute in Russia pretty much allows the government to throw anyone in jail that they want to for speaking out against the regime. We have to remember that this is not a country where the rule of law exists. It's a personalist dictatorship. And so the law can be used the way the state sees yeah. fit to punish anyone that opposes them. So, Professor Taylor, walk us through this a little bit. We have been reporting news for a while over the years uh, of what happens to people who uh, disagree with the president of Russia. Tell us what uh, the, the, the man who just died, <laughs> Alexei Navalny, what that means for him. And is, is it going to be handled? And the, is, will the reaction in Russia be different than prior critics of Mr. Putin? Um, unfortunately, I think the state now is so repressive that it will be able to mm. take control and exert control over any protests. We've seen over 100 people arrested in Russia today for coming out to commemorate Navalny's murder. Uh, just laying a flower in a public space uh, has led to people being detained by the police today. So it's also important to note that many opposition-minded people, opposition figures fled the country after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine two years ago. Navalny's movement was broken up and those people are in exile. Other people are in prison. So there is no symbol to lead any opposition inside the country walking free today. Well, if that's true, and, and, and I, I believe that it's, that it's true, why not just leave this guy alone? But now all of a sudden by killing him, if that's what happened, uh, and it wasn't just a collapse, uh, something natural, and he just died from that, why, why, why make these people, you know, all of a sudden rise up again? It was pretty quiet. I think they don't think the people are going to rise up. I think uh, Putin and the people around him are feeling confident that they cannot be challenged. I think it's fair to say that Vladimir Putin uh, disliked Navalny personally mm -hmm. for exposing his corruption, for exposing secrets of his personal life and his secret bank accounts and his secret mistresses. And he was determined to silence him. Uh, they put him away, away as remotely as they could inside Russia. And apparently, we don't know the exact circumstances today, but Vladimir Putin in public today did not seem distressed about this news, uh, to put it mildly. And he's always been afraid even to say Navalny's name out loud in public. Uh, he always referred to him as that person or that blogger or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, uh, on Eyewitness News today, throughout the day, we talked about Navalny being some sort of opponent of Mr. Of, of the, of the, of Mr. Putin's during the 
upcoming elections. But if he's in prison, how would that have happened? Well, of course, he was not an explicit opponent in terms of being on the ballot, but Russian elections aren't real elections. Right. So the only people on the ballot to run against Putin are handpicked candidates who are known not to challenge Putin directly and who are only there uh, for decorative pur purposes. This is not an election. It's the sort of coronation of a czar for uh, another long term in office. Wow. It's all kind of chilling. 1984-ish, uh, uh, if some people will remember that book and the movie, and I know you do. Professor Brian Taylor from Syracuse University, really appreciate your insight with us, Professor. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. Good night. As we continue with Iowa News Extra Time tonight, a whale of a tail in New York, the second largest animal in the world, has moved to the Big Apple. We're going to take a deeper dive into this story next. All right. Hey. Big whale, meet Big Apple. According to new research, the second largest animal in the world, it's called the fin whale, lives now in New York City's waters year round. Previously, the whales were only believed to be in our area during the summer months. But scientists from the Wildlife Conservation Society now say new data shows they are actually most active during the fall. Who knew? They've been spotted off the Rockaways, along Brooklyn's coast, and off the Jersey Shore. Welcome here, fellas. Joining us now with more, because this guy knows what he's talking about, Dr. Howard Rosenbaum, co-author of the study and director of the Wildlife Conservation Society's Ocean Giants program. Dr. Rosenbaum, thank you for joining us. Really good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. All right, so tell us why this is a big deal. So it's, it's really a truly remarkable story. I mean, if you think about it, the second largest animal that's ever lived on this planet is right off of our shores. Uh, you would think that if an animal, even a fraction of the size, um, were um, roaming around on land today, most people in the metropolitan area would know about it. Right. But using a, a series of underwater microphones, we recorded almost 2,000 hours of acoustic data documenting their calls and song over a four-year period. And from that, we detected these fin whales um, that they the, the use the New York bite, this this area from Cape May, New Jersey to Montauk, New York, in every month of the year. And as you said in your opening remarks, you know, we thought they were just here to feed during the summer months. Well, actually, they're here in every month of the year. OK, so did they move in or have they been here the whole time and you just now found out about it? Well, that's a good question. One that we're still trying to understand. I think with time, these animals have found that this is, you know, suitable habitat and so I think it's a combination of things. In essence, these animals, you know, do use this habitat in a year-round fashion, um, primarily to feed, but we also have, have detected um, signatures of uh, breeding activity as well. But, you know, in essence, we, over the last eight or nine years, we've done increased work to find out more about these animals in the New York and New Jersey area right off of our shores so we can better protect them. So it's a combination of the two, I think. So we, 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 we hear about, you know, whale songs and whale sounds. Uh, uh, you've got a lot of them. Um, did you never have that before? We, we, couldn't, we couldn't find that out before? Or well, so we've actually been doing work um, over the last um, about eight years off of New York. And um, slowly but surely, we've been building up a body of work yeah. on 
on humpback whales, on North Atlantic right whales, a critically endangered species, um, and now fin whales, in essence. So, you know, it took a lot of work, a lot of analysis to find out about the calls and songs that that these animals produce. And not only, as you, as you said, like, we're, we're finding out that from these songs, it's actually males produce a very stable song pattern that can be used to distinguish them from other populations. But during one year, we found two distinct song patterns in the new, you know, right off here of New York. It could be the first evidence that we have two different populations of fin whales in this area. So, so in essence, it's building up a body of work, you know, on these whales and other dolphins that are in this area in order to use this information to better protect them here when they're in the New York fight, right so, off our shores in New Jersey. Right. And, you know, listen, from the Jersey shore all the way to Montauk is beautiful. Who wouldn't want to stay here all, all year round, especially if you don't get too cold in the water like that? Um, what do they what, what do they get out of all this? Why do they like this water? That's a that's a great question, Bill. Um, well, first of all, you know, during a number of the months of the year, you know, in essence, from the late spring to the late fall, there's a there's a prey that they eat, a, a small schooling fish called sand lance or sand eels. And, you know, when that's in the right concentrations, it turns into a feeding frenzy. And these animals, and you're seeing some of the video and photos of these animals moving through the area in search of their food. So it's a it's a very, you know, rich area for them to feed. But then with some of these um, these song notes um, and some other behaviors that we've observed when they're actually um, when we're out there, you know, on the on the water in our boats, conducting work as part of the Wildlife Conservation Society's efforts. We've actually seen these animals um, in in what we call competitive groups, which are, are, are signatures of breeding activity and some of the songs they produce. So, you know, the, the area may be, you know you know, valuable enough for these animals yeah. to both feed here, you know, in essence, breed here and migrate through here. In essence, we also have found evidence of two populations. So in essence, it, it may not always be the same animals, but every month of the year, there are fin whales here in the New York Bight. Some will want to go to Disney World in Florida. Who knows? Uh, tell me what they like to eat here. What's so good about it in the, in the water here? So, I, I mean, they, you know, what we have you know, right off of our shores, you know, just beyond, you know, what, what people can see and, you know, even a little further, um, when you get, you know, 20, 30, 40, yeah. even 50 miles offshore, it's a marine wilderness. And we have this small schooling fish that, that many different species of whales like to feed on like humpback whales and fin whales and minke whales and even tuna feed on them. There so we get, um, it really turns into an amazing wildlife you know, aggregations, feeding, seabirds, all in the same area. So it's all driven by the, you know, the base of the food chain, the small, you know, the small schooling fish called sand eels. Uh, you got 10 seconds to answer this question. I'll give you 15. Doesn't this, isn't this a sign that our water is getting better and cleaner? I think so. I think so. There's more work to do. I mean, we still have, you know, we still have issues yeah. in our waters like, you know, ocean noise, risks of ship strikes and entanglement okay. fishing gear. But overall, I think our waters are getting better. And it's really a remarkable recovery that we're witnessing. And there's more work to do. Howard so, Rosenbaum from the you. Wildlife Conservation Society's Ocean Giants. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Right. Uh, that's it for this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. We'll see you tonight on Channel 7, Eyewitness News at 11.